It's good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. Um, what, a, what a sweet gift to be together. We continue our series uh, in the book of Galatians, asking this question, is Jesus enough? I mean, for real, is he enough? Last week, we explored the reality of the implications of the gospel. And largely, we said the good news of Jesus isn't just for a someday heaven, but a today reality. This week, we're going to build off that foundation in our passage. I'll ask that you find a copy of the scriptures. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 10. And the title of our sermon this morning is, Who Has? Who? Who has the words of life? And this is a fair question, isn't it? Throughout human history, people have always sought to find someone, something, largely someone, that has information, data, authority, wisdom, and maybe, maybe some answers. This is true today. Earlier this year, there's a group called uh, Insider Intelligence. They did an empirical research study that showed that the average American, this is average, the average American spends seven hours and 50 minutes a day in digital media, engaging in some form and capacity. Well, now those of you that are of the more traditional route, the Americans spend, uh, now traditional route, I mean TV, radio, newspaper, uh, children, newspaper are large pieces of paper that old people turn to read. If you go the more traditional route, well, the number lowers uh, to five hours and 30 minutes a day of traditional information. So what are we doing with all the podcasts, Facebook, TV news, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and all the rest? What are we doing on those things? Man, that's a lot of hours a day. We are people seeking life-giving words. That's what we're doing on those things. So whether it's through entertainment, education, being an informed citizen, uh, whether it's comparing yourself to someone else, maybe on a social media app, we want this. We want life, encouragement, truth. Comfort, and let's be honest, satisfaction. I'd like to submit to our hearts this morning uh, this main idea. The words of Jesus bring true life. You and I spend a lot of time empirically on other things, seeking life, joy, satisfaction. And I would argue that the words of Jesus bring true life. If you get this, my friends, if you get it, if you understand it, if you cling to it, well, then you'll find yourself where the disciples did. I always think of John 6, and it's right that we're having communion, I guess, in light of this. John 6, Jesus says something very peculiar. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Well, that was a little weird for some of them. They're saying, this, this, this is crazy talk. So, so they departed. They left. They, they weren't following Jesus anymore. And Jesus turns to his, his brothers, to the disciples of 12, 
All right, gentlemen. What about you guys? Are you too going to depart? And I love Peter's response. <laughs> depart? Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. The words of Jesus that bring true life. So I want to explore this together in our passage as we ask three questions that are going to frame our thinking on whether or not Jesus is enough and if his words really do bring life. Uh, I said we're going to be in verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to start in verse 3 just because I love those verses that we read last week. So read in verse 3 with me down through 10. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel? Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. <laughs> but, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So our first question, what is the gospel? That has to be the first question. It has to be. It can't be assumed. We have to know what the gospel is that Paul's referring to in verse 6. Because notice again in verse 6, he says that a turning to a different gospel is the same. In his argument, it's equated to deserting God. If you desert the gospel, you're deserting God, he says. If we desire to not desert God, if we desire just to be faithful followers of Christ, then we must know what this gospel is. And not just know it, but hold to it and continue in it. I once heard a pastor say just a, a long time ago, there's nothing deeper than the gospel. We never move on from it in the Christian life. But rather, the Christian life is continually revisiting. What, what is this? How do I cling to it? How do I continue in it? Well, thankfully, we know exactly what kind of gospel Paul preached to these Galatian churches on his first missionary journey. You know why we know exactly what he said? Because uh, the Dr. Luke... Uh, in Acts, he recorded what Paul said in chapter 13 of Acts. And here's what Paul preached and proclaimed to these Galatian churches. Acts 13, 
37 through 39 says this. Paul preaching, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is good news. This is the gospel that Paul communicated with these Galatian churches, these first believers. The perfect life of Jesus, his active obedience was cashed in on the cross as he hung on a tree. He cashed it in, not for his own benefit. No, 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 absolutely not. But as we read last week, he willingly gave of himself to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. He did not see corruption, but God raised him from the dead three days later, literally, physically. And whoever believes in him has life, forgiveness, and freedom. Now, it's this last phrase they had issue with, freedom. They didn't like that. Now, it's, again, remember, ethnic, national, or just cultural-leaning Jewish Christians saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus died on the cross. But it's this freedom aspect that we have some issues with, Paul. See, Paul said that the good news of Jesus freed us from the requirement and the penalty of the law of Moses. That's what he said. That's what we read. That's what he preached. This gospel provided what the law could not. Favor and good standing with God. So, How did these Galatian churches respond to this good news of freedom from the law? Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What are they doing? They hear of freeness, the gospel, Right standing with God, not based on their performance, but the finished work of Christ. And they rejoice, saying, oh, praise God. I'm clinging to that. I'm choosing that. I'm believing in that. That's the freeness of the message. Well, they did respond in praise and belief. Deliverance from sin, true forgiveness and freedom was found in Jesus. Okay, so back to our passage in verse 6. That gospel, that is what these Galatian churches are now turning from. They're turning from it. This is what was happening. Well, what what is the good news? What is the gospel? It is faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that was being twisted. That was being manipulated by these Judaizers into saying that the good news really was faith in Jesus plus your works, your obedience to the law. So my friends, here's the question that we're forced to wrestle with. And not just this morning, but really every day. Where do I find good news? Who do I listen to? Who has 
the words of life. Now, you may not audibly hear yourself asking these questions, but if we're honest in our inner thoughts, we think that. As we turn on the news, open the social media feed, as we listen to the podcast, watch the YouTube video, what are we doing? We are functionally seeking words of life. Where can I go? What can I turn on? What can I feed myself with? And like we said earlier, what we're really seeking is comfort, joy, satisfaction, and true life. And if we're honest, some of you, just you don't want to be bored anymore. I don't want to be bored. I want the Christian life to actually mean something. I want my life to have some measure of excitement. So we go chase it. Where will we turn this week? If you're convinced that the words of Jesus and his gospel are life-giving, then you will go there. You will seek his words. If you are convinced that Jesus does not have anything to do with the present evil age, your current joy and satisfaction in him, life-giving words for a Monday morning. If you don't think that's true, then you won't go to him. So what are, you know, I, I was thinking, I mentioned last in the first service, you know, what would the little kids say if we brought them in from Sunday school? What would be their answer? Well, where do we go for the words of life, little seven-year-old? And they'd probably be a lot wiser than we are in some ways because they point to the simple means of grace that God's given us. So yeah, we do read our Bibles to interact with the words of life. Sometimes we do write out verses or memorize them or put them on our dash. Sometimes we do listen to music that points us to Him. We do live life in community that are oftentimes very, very life-giving and helpful. But here's the danger. The danger is that you and I could read our Bibles, memorize verses, listen to Christian songs, and even live in community and still miss the freeness that the gospel affords. Now, how is that possible? There is a way to read your Bible where you place the emphasis on your good standing with God on your performance for the week. There is a way to listen to even Christian music and fall into this same trap where you think the good news is, yes, Jesus, but plus me. So even good things can be dangerous. There has to be a gospel-centeredness in our life that constantly says, I'm not simply going to Christian things, but I am constantly looking to the good news of Jesus that says, right standing is based on his work and not my own. We're going to get more on that in a second, but here's the second question. The first question, well, what is the gospel? We have to know that because remember, Paul says, if you turn from the gospel, it's the same as deserting him. So we have to nail down what the gospel is. But the second question we have to wrestle with this morning is, what 
distorts the gospel. Look at verse 7 again. Not that there is another one, another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this could be answered in a number of ways. What distorts, what muddies the water in the gospel? But there's two in our passage I want to frame in on here quick. The two that seem to be most clear in Paul's letter are these. First, celebrity. The celebrity distorts the gospel. This was a common issue in the early church, and it constantly did muddy the waters in the midst of the gospel being proclaimed. Look at, look at verse 8 again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Why the hyperbolic language, Paul? Even if an angel from heaven should preach the gospel? Why is he saying that? Well, because what is true of their day is also true of our day. 2,000 years later, and much hasn't changed, has it? Part of the brokenness of our world leads us to be constantly on the lookout for a savior, for a hero, for a celebrity, for someone who looks and sounds like they know what they're talking about. I was doing this last night. I was on YouTube because it's YouTube. I was on YouTube. And I was watching the rerun of the Super Bowl where the Patriots came back and beat the Falcons. And I'm looking at that Tom Brady going, man, it'd be nice. It'd be nice to have that guy. Like there's this sense, I'm, I'm watching a game and I'm looking for a celebrity and a savior. Like we do this naturally, but we especially do it in the church, don't we? We constantly, we want to find someone who has words of life, who knows what they're talking about. There's some celebrities in this church. Basically, if you're older than me and your kids look halfway normal, you're a celebrity in my mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching you. I'm going to try to figure out how to get through these teenage years. Right? We do this. We look at the people around us and we say, I think they got it figured out. They look and talk the part. Well, that's not always bad. However, celebrity does have its issues. What we see of Paul's allusions to these Judaizers is that they were persuasive. Well, of course they were. We don't listen to people that don't sound like they're smart. But they were persuasive. They argued in subtle ways that Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel, the good news, it didn't really deliver you from the present evil age. We got work to do. Not just good works being the fruit of a life, but you have work to do if you want God to be pleased with you. Namely, they argued, upholding the Old Testament law. If you want to be more sanctified, more pleasing, do this, these celebrities said. So they came in. And these celebrities, these persuasive teachers made a lot of sense. And they swayed churches from believing in the freeness that the gospel affords you and I. Why did these churches listen? Because we love celebrities. 
One writer says this, It was highly unlikely that either an angel or Paul himself would show up in Galatia bearing a message opposite to the gospel they originally received. Unlikely. Even in these situations, however, the Galatians should judge the messengers by the truthfulness of the message they preached, not the reverse. And can we just be honest for a moment? Sometimes we fall into that trap. We don't judge the message based by its truthfulness to the word of God, but how we like how that message is being conduited through a person, a personality. I always tease the audio crew. I'm like, can you guys make me sound Scottish when I'm up here? You know, there's microphone, there's technology. And if, if it was up to me, there'd be a little button and Matt Nagel sounds like Alistair Begg. That would be my dream. And there's a sense in which, th- this is dangerous, I'll admit, for me, if Alistair Begg opens his mouth and says anything, I believe it. Why? Because there's a sense in which we do what the Galatian churches do. Instead of measuring a message by its truthfulness, we, we become infatuated with celebrity. Well, that's not the only way the gospel gets distorted. Uh, it's also distorted through math. Math, yeah. Like math, the way you're thinking. Some of you kids might be excited right now. I know mine are. Perhaps hoping that I'm suggesting to your parents and to your teachers that math should be taken off the curriculum because Jesus said so. I hear some amens in the back. Rather, rather, these outside voices, these Judaizers, And sometimes we ourselves, if we're honest, we fall into this kind of distorting. When we add or subtract from the gospel of Jesus. Look again at verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached. Look at verse 9. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, this word contrary, it's repeated twice. What exactly makes a message or someone's version of the good news contrary to Jesus? What makes it contrary? Quite simply, math. Any addition any subtraction to the message and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's how I think it played out in Paul's day. The fuzzy math would have been a conversation centered on Jesus. Is Jesus enough? And the Judaizers would say, yeah, 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 for sure, for real. No cap. Jesus is enough. But there's a few things You need to add on for God to be pleased with you. I mean, we're glad you've trusted in Jesus. Welcome to the tribe. But now that you're in, we have some things for you to grow in, these Judaizers would say. And it'd be an awkward conversation. This is awkward. This is awkward. I'm glad you trusted in Jesus, but you need to do some things for God to be pleased. I don't know how to say this. You got to get circumcised. 
You got to get circumcised. See, circumcision was this Old Testament thing that us Jews did as a physical sign of our allegiance to God. We're with you, God, because we're circumcised. And hopefully, it was a picture of something that had happened in their heart. So they come, these Judaizers, awkward conversation. Welcome to trusting in Jesus. You need to get circumcised. And as we'll see in coming chapters, you need to be careful who you have lunch with. Now fast forward to today. The time and the place we find ourselves. It is the Brainerd Lakes area. It is 2021. Now there's a good chance if you trusted in Jesus and someone approached you about your meal partners and circumcision as a requirement to follow Jesus, you would just kind of laugh them off. Well, depending on, maybe on the meal thing. I mean, that Jesus chicken at Chick-fil-A, that's a real conversation. But we don't have those kinds of conversations that those Jews did. We don't. However, brothers and sisters, however, we distort the gospel of Jesus by playing with the same kind of fuzzy math. So here are some ways people today Maybe in our church, maybe in our community. Here are ways people distort the gospel today. You've trusted in Jesus, that's great. But if you really want God to be pleased with you, you shouldn't listen to secular music. No red hot chili peppers for you, I'm sorry. If you want God to be pleased with you, then you should walk and talk and use the same Christianese language that we do. If you want God to be pleased with you, you should really follow a certain conviction with schooling your children. If you really want God to be pleased with you, you should just believe. Don't even pursue holiness. That's legalism. People say that. If you want God to be pleased with you, you should vote the same way I do. If you want God to be pleased with you, you should read out of this translation, or better yet, you should follow the subgroup in the tribe of Christianity that I like. If you want God to be pleased with you, you should not struggle with certain sins, like the one you just thought of. If you want God to be pleased with you, you should stay away from X. Y and Z. If you want God to be pleased with you, your performance in the Christian life should look like that. You know, the buttered up Instagram one? Here's my favorite. If you want God to be pleased with you, you shouldn't root for the Packers. I mean, that last one's silly, but my friends, if you're adding, that's what that was. If we're adding or subtracting from the gospel of Jesus for good standing in God's eye, whether initially at salvation or in the midst of the Christian life, you're playing a math game that doesn't add up. It doesn't. Faithful followers of Christ believe that Jesus is enough. His gospel doesn't need to be distorted. You don't need to add or subtract to it. Resting in Christ means trusting in His performance and not yours. Do you know what's the hardest verse in the Bible for Matt Nagel to believe? Romans 
There is therefore no condemnation, no judgment, no anger to those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but God, my, my performance this week, I, I failed in this and that and this, and I didn't love you with all my heart, and I missed opportunities to serve my neighbor. I did fine on 210 this week, by the way. But, but there, there's a sense in which we're constantly, constantly adding and subtracting to the gospel, even in subtle ways. We do it. So as you think of going out this week, and this isn't just for the kids, some of us older kids, what kind of math will you be practicing this week? Are you going to put stipulations on your life and the lives of others that Jesus never would? You know, I think sometimes we hear things like that, and we, some of us, we get nervous. At least I do. I'm like, well, if we communicate the, the freeness of the gospel, if we say that there's no judgment, that, that your good standing isn't based upon your performance, but his finished work, part of me gets a little nervous. I'm like, well, you know, what if everyone... They, they just do whatever they want and they don't, they don't pursue Christ. And, and there is a sense in which we should be marked by Christian fruit and good works, right? The fruit of good works in the Christian life in obedience flow out of our good standing with Him. It's not based on that. So God help us as we go out this week to truly rest in Christ, to guard ourselves from this kind of distortion, whether it be from the outside world or if, you know, usually it's just us condemning ourselves. So what is the gospel? What distorts the gospel? And lastly, what motivates the gospel? Look again at verse 10, please. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I think we can answer Paul's rhetorical question for him. No, he's certainly not trying to please man. Uh, there's no way. You're not winning any friends in Paul's day or ours when we say someone is cursed or judged by God for changing this gospel message. But the question of motivation is critical. It's critical. What will motivate you to share the good news of Jesus? Or, even in, or, or just even stand when there's opposition to it? What will motivate you to confront a brother or sister in Christ and tell them that they're out of step with their understanding of the gospel and its implications? What will motivate you to not simply talk about the good news of Jesus, but to not be a hypocrite and to live it out as a faithful follower of Christ this week? What will motivate you to rest in Christ's work on your behalf and not your performance? Here's the answer. So what Paul was motivated by 
You and I will do those things when we are motivated by the truth that the words of Jesus bring true life. That has to be the ultimate motivation. That's what motivates Paul, and that's what's going to motivate us this week in the life that God has given us. We're motivated because we're convinced of this truth, that true life is found in Jesus and nowhere else. Yeah, I got podcasts, I got YouTube, I got radio, I got newspaper, I got information and data. I have voices speaking into my life, even in community. I mean, please speak into my life community. We should be doing that. But ultimately, I'm convinced that the words of Jesus bring true life. And that's going to be my motivation to go out. You are motivated by the eternal reality that Jesus is enough. So look at the, at the end of verse 10 again. I would not be a servant of Christ. That's what he's concerned about. He wants to be a servant. He wants to be a slave. He wants to answer to the master. He wants to follow him, not himself. Paul writes to these churches, and Galatians has a little bit of, uh, you know, like, hey, settle down, Paul. You know, he's telling people, you're going to be accursed. You'll be accursed. I mean, there's some language in this book that demonstrates that he comes in with urgency concern, doctrinal correction, not because he's a snob, not because he's some doctrinal hound dog who everyone needs to believe just the same little nuance as he does, but rather, rather, he's motivated because he's a faithful follower of Christ. He's a servant, he says at verse 10, a servant who's become convinced of this truth. That when you look out into the world, whether it be digital media, relationships, the news, entertainment, whatever it is, none of it offers a life-giving word, hope, satisfaction, and eternal joy. And I can prove this empirically. None of you have ever had a meal. I mean, and I'm sure your mom can cook. You've never had a meal and you said, I'm satisfied. I never need to eat again. Three hours later, you're in the kitchen, you're snooping. Why? Because you're not ultimately satisfied. You've never had a dollar amount in the bank. Oh, I'm, I'm ultimately satisfied. I don't need another penny. Uh, no, you better show up to work next week. Because I'm not going to find my ultimate satisfaction and provision in a dollar amount. You always need more. And kids, it doesn't grow on trees. How about our relationships? You've never had sex and said, that's it. Never, never again. Never need it. You've never had companionship and a great conversation and say, oh, never need another conversation with anyone again. Do you know that God has designed the things of this world to ultimately fail you? 
our health, our beauty, our finances, our relationships, they're not eternal. And by God's grace, they're not. Because as the things of this world, the temporary things of this world fall apart, it's what we're saying, show us Christ. Show me something that lasts. And that's why Paul is convinced. That's why he's preaching and communicating with such urgency. Because he's concerned that people are looking out, seeking their best life now. And he says, oh no, Jesus is enough. There is no other good news. True freedom, truly life-giving words are found in the gospel of Christ. If you feel like there's a lack of motivation in your life, kids, if your parents are punks and you don't want to listen to them, if you don't feel motivated to share the gospel, if you don't feel motivated to live for Christ, to be in his word, if you don't feel motivated to be here, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. And you will never find motivation by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, but rather you will be motivated and set on fire as you behold the beauty of Jesus and his life-giving words. That's what we need. That's what I need. Give me Christ. And really, brothers and sisters, that's what we're doing here on a communion Sunday. Do you know that? We're coming here this week having lived a life full of circumstance, complication, sin, relationship, joys, victories. And sometimes we come here saying, Jesus, are you real? Are you powerful? And do you have anything for me today? What do you have? Is there life-giving words? Is there hope for me? Can anything change? That's one of the reasons Jesus, Jesus instituted communion. Because it's a physical, tangible reminder, a remembrance of what he's done. I know I'm not the only one where sometimes in the middle of the week, God seems far off and I feel dry. Communion Sunday was begun or began because Jesus knew that we would be a forgetful people. So as you eat this little cracker, this little wafer that tastes terrible, and you drink of the juice, you're going you're gonna to chew that and feel it, and you're going to swallow it. You're going you're gonna to feel juice on your lips and taste it as it goes down. And just as real as these physical, tangible cracker and juice are, so is the reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need physical, tangible reminders of who he is and what he's done. I'll ask those at this time, those who are serving communion, to come forward. And you may be asking, what is communion for? Okay, it's a remembrance to remember what Jesus has done. Yes, 
He has life-giving words. But there's a second question. Who is this for? Well, communion is a family meal. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this remembrance is for you. This is not for perfect Christians. Uh, If that was the case, no one would be eating this meal. But rather, this is for faithful followers of Christ who are simply clinging on to the life-giving reality of the gospel. If you're here today and you're just visiting, if you don't know Jesus, or if you have unrepentant sin in your life, don't take this. Let this pass on. And even as you observe a family remembering Jesus, may it stir you to get right with the Lord, to consider faith in Jesus, or to restore a relationship, or to confess sin that you haven't. Um, So let's do that now as a family. I'm going to pray. The elders will pass the elements. I'm I'm mainly saying this because I'm new. They're going to pass the elements Take that opportunity to really pray and to reflect and to celebrate. This isn't a funeral. This is a celebration of what the Lord has done. And then as we all have the elements, uh, we'll partake together. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for not just the life-giving words, but a life-giving sacrament. Communion a tangible, physical reminder of who you are and what you've done. God, we need those. So as we reflect and remember on the death of Jesus, his body being broken, on the blood of Jesus, his blood being spilled, may not simply be some cute thing that we do on a communion Sunday, but a heartfelt declaration that says, yes, this is what I'm clinging to. This is what's life-giving what God has done on my behalf. Lord, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.